of the decline of the Roman Empire and then the ascendancy of Christianity, and yet in that process of switch, the church significantly um, took some advances with the life of Augustine. And uh, so we're going to consider him. He's a North African bishop. And uh, so I invite you to come in and pull up a seat. So let's consider this setting here as we... My, 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 my pointer is not working. Um, Caleb, uh, the, mice, the mouse has to be on the screen of the PowerPoint, otherwise my clicker won't move. All right. I have a, I have a remote. Okay. Did it work? There we go. Come on. Come on. All right. Thank you. A little, little fussy today. It must be the weather. Um, so we're going to consider the setting of the church um, during the fourth century, and uh, as we're getting closer to the end of what we call the the, the secular Roman Empire, um, the church began to assume a lot of the structures that the the uh, political side of the empire started to to lose. The church began to assume some of those. Uh, uh, authorities. But I want us to think a little bit too about the, the, the affairs of the church, and we're going to think about Rome as well. Um, there was a significant influence that bishops had in those days, uh, and it rose relatively early because as the apostles faded away, there was a natural need for people to find a new leader to help articulate doctrine. And what happened is that there were regional cities that, and it's kind of normal to human nature for sometimes those in prominent cities to take on more leadership. Um, we in rural settings don't necessarily like that. Uh, we tend to like to, to step into the background, but cities, if it were in America, it'd be like Philadelphia, New York, uh, Los Angeles, Chicago, we don't like the fact that in our world those cities are dominant um, and provide some sort of leadership. We don't like necessarily where those leaders are taking us, but it is human nature to look towards larger city settings at times, and uh, that's occurred very early in the church age. And, uh, and so they would debate at times the pastor, for example, in Ephesus or the pastor in Alexandria or in Rome would discuss doctrines, and they would put it out for discussion on purpose because they wanted to make sure that what they're promoting for church, the Christianity at large, would be agreed upon by everyone. And it would be a way to test their doctrine to make sure that they weren't introducing heresy by mistake. And so, this was a good practice, but at some times this created significant resistance because some bishops would say, I don't necessarily want to submit to that teaching. I, I see it a different way. And so you can see the natural human tendency towards rivals develop. And um, I just want to point out um, pride. Yep, exactly, pride. Um, there, 
in the early centuries, there were significant places of, for lack of a better word, power or influence. Uh, there were five bishoprics in the early church, and they headquartered out of Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria. And there were, there were other bishops that were kind of in those spheres, but the prominent bishop in those locations tended to have much more influence over the church, and because they were near secular places of power as well. Um, there were, during this time period, some emerging differences between Christians, um, particularly between the East, so that would be Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, and then what was considered the West would be Rome um, and Greece, and, and kind of in that, that movement, not Greece, but Rome and uh, France and Spain and those areas that would be more on the west, western side. And some differences started to develop, and you can see that in the early church when we talked about Arius having some influence um, with Greek-speaking uh, bishoprics last time. And uh, something that naturally occurs, when people speak different languages, there's often uh, misunderstandings. And it becomes very difficult at times to articulate doctrine. And in particular, uh, this is, I think, a helpful illustration. Um, up to the f fourth century, most church creeds were written in Greek, and so Latin speakers, that wasn't their first language, had a hard time trying to process how the Greek speakers understood uh, essence, persona, and hypostasis, different terms that were very natural to Greek speakers. Latin speakers had a little bit of a harder time. I'll use this as, a, I think, a hopefully a helpful illustration. The word that we translate repentance in English um, is derived from the Greek metanoeo, which means to turn away, to turn away from sin. Uh, Latin speakers didn't have a very good equivalent word and they used a word, poententia, which means to do penance. Can you see the difference between those words? And you can see, particularly in the Roman Catholic tradition, how that would take sway in terms of how people understood the application of the gospel, that by doing penance, you were becoming uh, converted. Does that make sense? But there's a different orientation there in those words, and that those kinds of things did make it difficult. That is definitely uh, for certain. And um, so, I just wanted to mention that as these major creeds were being developed and councils, um, it began to become challenging on a political and also an ethnic differences and hard to manage. Um, the Roman Empire during that time period also was in a period of decline, as I mentioned. Um, and, and this time of decline, um, over 200 years, there was this political difficulty of how to manage such a sprawling empire when there was the ethnic differences. And so what they developed, the Roman Empire developed, they developed tetrarchies to try to manage. Uh, so they had Julius Caesar was the, one of the most famous centralized emperors, but after him, it became challenging to, to have a unified head. 
So they divided the empire up into four and five different zones that were led by regional leaders, and they would compete at times for supremacy in the process. And um, during those first 300 years of the church's history, the, the conflict and instability was created because the church was being promoted on the one hand by one emperor, and then paganism was being promoted by a new emperor, and the ruling classes were creating such discontinuity for the society, they were weakening the empire. And I think you can probably see this even in our own society, in which you have such vast differences of worldview alternating within political dynamics here in America. That has, a dis, that has an effect to significantly weaken the structure and fabric of a society. That's not a new thing. This is what has happened in the past. And so the Christians became uh, scapegoats at times through this process. Finally, this escalated into a crisis, into a crisis in the West. Um, perhaps you've heard of the sack of Rome and the fall of Rome. Uh, Rome fell because there was an invasion of barbarians. They were called the Visigoths. Um, when I heard the term, bar- when I hear the term barbarian, I think highly uneducated. It just means simply that they didn't speak the Latin, but they weren't uneducated. They were from the Balkans. In fact, most of them, funny enough, were Aryan Christians. They were Christians who had embraced the heresy of Arianism, and yet they didn't want the political structure of Rome over them anymore, and they came in and they, they strategically entered into Rome, and in 410, the city fell and really left the, the empire in a, in a shadow of, of what it was. Many people fled to North Africa, um, and when they fled to North Africa, they found themselves underneath of the influence of, of Augustine, who was the bishop who lived there at that time. So, this, this is all kind of prelude to, to, to kind of get us our focus to think through the life of Augustine, his contribution. We're going to be uh, thinking about him. On your outline, you have there kind of a, a, a running list of key points in his life. And uh, I would have to say that no ancient Christian writer has had more influence upon Christianity than Augustine. Um, many different... Um, Variations within our thinking uh, have some reception from him. Whether or not, whether we agree 100% on some of his key points or not, he had created conversations that even continue today. And uh, I think it's helpful for us as believers to be aware of his influence. Um, so I want to talk about, just to give you an overview of his life, he was born to a Christian mother. He had a pagan father who uh, had different goals for the raising of their son. And uh, his mother, Monica, um, earnestly desired that uh, young Augustine would be converted and become a Christian. And on the other hand, uh, his father, Patricus, uh, or Patrick, wanted him to excel in the the languages uh, and do study in rhetoric and uh, encouraged him along those lines. And a lot of the, the rhetoric in those days was structured around pagan 
ideals and methodology. And uh, through the first 30 years of Augustine's life, he, he ended up running away from God. Even though he had a godly mother in the background influencing him, he ran and pursued um, rhetoric and philosophy in the city of Carthage. Um, and so, let's see here. I'm behind here, sorry. So he, he went to Carthage and he began to receive instruction and he came under the influence of Manichaeism. Manichaeism is a philosophy that believes that there is a dualism in the universe, believes that created things and matter is inherently evil, and yet that which is truly good is connected to the spiritual. Um, it's very much a Gnostic cult. We talked a few Sundays ago about Gnosticism, and Manichaeism was an attempt to be a respectable kind of like philosophical um, approach to life, and it was very attractive to Augustine. Um, in fact, because of this influence, I believe he was led to take in a woman who was not ultimately someone he married to live with him uh, because the physical body is not as essential as the spiritual, and he never committed to her in marriage, and she is referred to as a concubine. Now, that sounds like an Old Testament word, right? Concubine, you think of, but a concubine is essentially a, uh, a, a live-in relationship that's not legally binding in any way. The Roman Empire acknowledged that people could live in those situations, just as some states here in America, it's the same way. And um, she, she bore um, Augustine a son, and yet he was never married to her. At age 16, his, uh, his son at 16 years of age uh, tragically died, unfortunately. And so, um, amid his studies, Augustine became under this influence of Manichaeism, and uh, I won't go into too much detail on that belief set, but throughout his worldly pursuits, Augustine's mother pleaded with the Lord that the Lord would save him. And in 383, just after Christianity became the official state religion in 381, uh, Theodosius I declared that the religion of the empire would now be Christianity. Augustine sailed for Rome and became a teacher of rhetoric in Milan. And while he was in Milan teaching rhetoric, he, he was rising to the pinnacle of his career at the age of 30. He was very successful. And uh, while there, he encountered a bishop named Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, and he was a very well-known teacher. He, um, he, he had a lot of uh, the political class coming to his church because he was such a good teacher, and uh, this attracted Augustine as well, and as he was sitting there listening, he, he suddenly realized that the message of the gospel was what he was needing. Uh, he had tried the Manichaean approach to having life lived and, and taking in a woman and, 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 and pursuing lusts of the flesh, and um, 
he decided that he would become a catechumen of the church. A catechumen is someone who is going to put themselves under a disciple maker and spend the time to understand the doctrines of the church that would eventually lead towards baptism. And uh, we know some of the key elements that occurred when he converted to Christ. Uh, he records them in his uh, famous book called The Confessions. And uh, I'm just going to read an excerpt from The Confessions. Um, he says that he was, he was reading scriptures in his house, uh, challenged by Ambrose. Ambrose encouraged people to read the scriptures privately and in silence and just to use meditation. It was kind of one of the first ministers of the gospel to encourage a devotion time. Um, and because uh, it was very common for people to go to the church to hear the scriptures. Well, now it was a, that was, this was very new, and, and Augustine was applying this, what he had heard. And he says, Suddenly I heard the voice of a boy or a girl, I know not which, coming from the neighboring house, chanting over and over again, Pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it. And so I quickly turned to the bench, for there I had put down the apostle's book when I had left there, and I snatched it up, and I opened it up, and in silence read the paragraph on which my eyes first fell, not in rioting and in drunkenness, not in eroticism and indecency, not in strife and in envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to, for instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty, and all the gloom of my doubt vanished away. And that seems to be the time in which his heart moved and embraced Christianity, and it was very personalized to him. Um, he was baptized, uh, and that day, baptisms would occur on Easter Sunday. And uh, leading up, starting with like what was traditionally called Ash Wednesday, there would be a time frame for new believers to prepare themselves for commitment to baptism. And then, if, and then that, the, the Ash Wednesday routine would have lent, would have been kind of the idea of putting away of things uh, and then get preparing yourself to respond in faith and enter the baptismal waters on Easter Sunday. Not long after his conversion, Augustine resigned his post in Milan, and he, he pursued a life of cultured retirement. That was the, at 30 years of age, he was retired, um, but that was the goal, and honestly, in our culture, it's almost like the goal of, like, I need my freedom 55, and then I can pursue a life of kind of, like, I can do what I want. And that was his goal. He made it. Um, I guess uh, being a teacher of rhetoric was very profitable, and uh, he was able to return home. And when he returned home, I'm really abridging a lot of his life here, um, he moved back to Hippo to start a monastery um, and then was ordained a priest in Hippo. And uh, Augustine would remain a priest and then become a bishop and he died in 430 A.D. It's reported that leading up to his death, um, he had assistants pin up 
scriptures from the penitential psalms around his room so that he could look at those psalms as he was preparing to meet his God. And uh, just a, there's a, it's recorded, an early biographer records this of Augustine Lang dying, um, and he ordered those Psalms of David, which are especially uh, penitential, to be copied out. For example, have mercy on me according to thy steadfast love, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me, Psalm 51. And when he was very weak, he used to lie in his bed facing a wall where the sheets of paper were put up, gazing at them and reading and copiously and continually weeping as he read. And as we, you know, and I, I kind, of, kind of end his life thinking that way, he, was, he, he had a lot of guilt that he inherited from his early life. Um, while he had confidence in God's forgiveness, uh, some of those memories still linger with, with him, and you can see that. And some of those things will affect how he thinks about doctrine as well, and I think that's helpful for us to, to understand going into some of his major works. And I just want to give you a little overview so you kind of have a sense of, of his writings. Um, he wrote the Confessions, as I mentioned earlier. Um, we discussed that a little bit, and it's a biography, but it's oriented like a prayer of conversation towards God. And it's spoken in the first person, and it's, bio, uh, it's autobiographical as well. And he lays out the details of his life and his, his, his long struggle with, with um, immorality. And uh, he reflected upon his life uh, towards the end. Augustine wrote, he said, because he wanted his mind to move towards God. And so in the writing out of this prayer, he was pushing himself to move his mind to reflect upon God and to love Him. And so, it's, he's brutally honest about himself. Um, he writes this, that, "'My sins multiplied, and the woman with whom I used to sleep with was torn from my side,' when he came to Christianity, and it was as an obstacle to my marriage, and the, that heart to which she stuck fast was cut and wounded in me and oozed blood. It was very graphic. He was, he was kind of reflecting upon just how, how much sin had a hold upon his heart. It was very honest. Um, and he, he recognized as well his own, the underlying condition. He had a, a desire that moved him towards seeking love in a wrong way. He understood deep down in his heart that it was desires that were being moved by sin. And um, he says, uh, witty and polished. That's kind of how he thought of himself as being, I'm, I'm a, wet, a witty and polished kind of man. But yet he said, I had not yet been in love, and I was in love with loving. I was a self-made man, and yet I was doing this because... I wanted to pursue love, and I wanted to find out what it was. So he was saying, I had this desire in the background that was moving me, and I set about finding an occasion to fall in love. So much in love was I with the idea of loving. And so he kind of maps out in these confessions just how, how deviant the heart is in pushing us towards sin 
in ways that we don't fully understand ourselves. He says, who can map out the various forces at play in one's soul, the, diff- the different kind of love that man has? Man is a great depth, O Lord. You number his hairs, but the hairs of the head are easier, to f- easier by far to count than his feelings and the movements of his heart. And so, yet for all of these stirrings within his heart and life, Augustine's uh, battle with sin is on display in confessions, and it also recounts his time of conversion to Christ as well, which we… But uh, I think probably the most famous quote that you might come across from the confessions is this, that in the introduction to it, Augustine says this, that you stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. It's a very good line, very good line. So, I'm going to talk about the Trinity and the city of God uh, in briefer form, Um, but in 399, he wrote, it it was published, his his, uh, discussion on the Trinity, something, though, that took him many, many years to put together, um, and he describes the inner workings of the Trinity. The early church, in the first three centuries, a lot of the writing was done in Greek. This is kind of the first Latin presentation of the, the Trinitarian workings together. Um, I know we did a, uh, last fall a, a separate Sunday school class on the Trinity, but he talked, um, he introduced what was called the psychological analogy of explanation of how the Trinity is distinct yet unified in its being. Um, and I know last Sunday we talked about the dangers of coming up with analogies, right? You can think of God as being like a three-leaf clover. No, 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 no. But I think this analogy is helpful from the standpoint of how does this work? And um, he came up with this, what's called the psychology analogy in which we in our minds, we have memory, we have understanding, and we have will. And any time you try to exercise any one of those three things, they're all working together. For example, try to remember something from when you were 10 years old. Well, you have to push your… you're making a decision to do that, and you start to digest. You have to start going through the Rolodex of your mind and come up, and you have understanding of what you experienced as a 10-year-old. But all three of those things are working together, and so he described that out of being made in God's image, we have that internal capacity, but there's a unity in all of those facets. And so, he thought in terms of God as being a unified being in that way. So, it, it's, that's all I want to say right there. Um, I, do, I do have a quote there on your sheet uh, where he quotes from John 17, and he alludes to these, these concepts um, here and talks about them having the same nature, yet being unified in love. And... Um, and that's all I'm going to say there. City of God, he wrote that in 413. Um, and this was in response to a letter that he received from someone who was worried about the state of affairs in the world. Uh, people were noticing Rome is on decline. Now what? 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 Rome was sacked. Now what? And so, he, he responded with 900 pages, which became the city of God, and the basic thesis of it is that 
the cities of this world will decline, but God's city will abide forever. And that we need not worry about all the things that are going on. And honestly, this is probably helpful for us here in America. We, we don't need to be worried. God's building will endure, and we have no need to worry. Um, I think I'll just quote a section there from the work. On your handout, I think it says, uh, the glorious city of God is my theme in this work, which you, my dearest son, Marcellinus, suggested, and which is due to you by my promise. I have undertaken its defense against those who prefer their own gods to the founder of this city, a city surpassingly glorious, whether we view it as it still lives by faith in this fleeting course of time and sojourns as a stranger in the midst of the ungodly, or as it shall dwell in the fixed stability of its eternal seat, which is now with patience waits for expecting until righteousness shall return unto judgment and obtain by virtue of its excellence final victory and perfect peace. And what he's referring to there is that God is building a city, in a sense, through conversion of people. It's not going to be finally realized, though, until He returns and makes it visible to the world. And so, He was speaking of um, that this earthly city is passing. We as Christians occupy two cities, but eventually the one city will become visible to the world. And that's how He was thinking about that. Um, Any questions at this point? I'm going to move now to controversies, some of the controversies he's known for. Oh, sorry, Pete. Yes. Oh, okay. So sometimes people use the word rhetoric as a derogatory word to say, oh, that's just rhetoric. That's just fancy arguments, in other words. But the study of rhetoric was the skill of being able to hold an argument before people that would convince them. So, it was, it was, it was a way of… He was teaching persuasive speaking, in other words. Apologetics, perhaps not from a Christian standpoint. He was pagan at this point. He was, he was trying to… It, Cicero was a, an orator that the Roman Empire looked up to is like, this man knows how to speak and move a nation. How do, we, how do we be that kind of a speaker? So, he was like a training school in how to, how to put together a speech in a way that uh, would move people to action. So, yeah, good question. So, um, so the controversies. There were three… There were three aspects that he taught against. He, he, he wrote against the, the Manichaeans who he had struggled with early on. I'm not going to go into that today, but I am going to think about how he wrote against a man by the name of Donatus and also a man by the name of Pelagius. Um, but thinking about Donatus, uh, just to give you an idea, during the, the persecutions of the church in the 300s, the early 300s, many clergy apostatized from the faith. There were many congregants who also um, got forged worship cards 
And it left the church with a, how do we, how do we deal with these people now that the persecution has passed? How are we going to regraft these people into the church again? And Donatus was a bishop in North Africa in the jurisdiction of Augustine who adopted a very rigorous approach, and he, he suggested that those Christians who apostatized um, shouldn't be allowed back into the church unless they are rebaptized, and any, any, uh, any marriages that have been, you know, consummated by this, this priest need to be redone. Uh, anyone who was baptized by this priest, they need to be uh, redone as well. Kind of reminds me of a situation back when Abby and I were, were married. Uh, we were married by a pastor from her home church, not the one she grew up with, who later cashed out of the ministry. He, he did some things that weren't appropriate, and we've always joked, now, was our marriage real? Because <laughs> he did the wedding ceremony. <laughs> you know, it's just a joke. Yes, we're still really married, and we still have a wedding certificate. But that's kind of the idea, is that, that, that was the actions that they took legitimate or not? So, Augustine um, argued with this priest, saying that you're taking a rigorous position that is unnecessary for the church to take, and you're requiring of others to take that position with you, and that's not helpful for the unity of the church. And so, he had several arguments against Donatus for this, and first he pointed out that Donatus' movement and effort to get everyone to think the same way was a regional movement. It wasn't broad-based. The whole church didn't require this of people. And so, therefore, he said, if they're unwilling to forgive repentant sinners, then there's a problem with you because the whole church is not doing this. It's your own personal vendetta that you're setting up. And Augustine insisted that um, to, to re-baptize lapsed clergy or congregants was unnecessary because baptism on its own is an independent act and is not dependent upon the priest who's doing it. And like kind of the joke with Abby and I with with a wedding certificate, we're still married, and that was kind of what he was saying. And he also pointed out some hypocrisies of these leaders and uh, the, the moral impurity of some of their, their actions. And, um, and so, Donatism would be a difficult issue in his day, but the church as a whole had a council called the Council of Carthage in which the Donatists the Donatists were removed from the church. They say this is this is an unacceptable approach, and um, in fact, he Augustine actually set up some things. Unfortunately, that that became very difficult for the church through the Middle Ages. And I'll just mention this: Augustine advocated that perhaps physical force might be justified to bring people into conformity with truth. And Augustine appealed to Scripture. He said, "The parable of the wedding feast." says, compel them to come in. Compel them to come into the, the banquet. If they're unwilling to, we're going to compel them to come in. And he took from that, basically, that physical force and religious matters 
might be justified. And you can see the problem with that. Uh, so that's all I want to say on Donatus Pelagius. I'm, I want to spend a little bit of time, and please forgive me for going just a little bit longer this morning. I'll try not to do that next week. But the battle of Donatus would shape Augustine's early ministry, but it would pale in comparison with his long and difficult confrontation with Pelagianism. Um, the controversy would begin in 405 AD and last the rest of his life, and then nearly a hundred years after Augustine's death, the church would not fully settle the issue. And the controversy with Pelagius centers upon um, the issue of human depravity and original sin. Uh, Augustine taught a very predestinarian position regarding God's movement in bringing people to faith. Um, Augustine held that God predestined to show grace to some, and he affirmed that without God's gracious intervention, none would freely choose God. Um, this is important just to understand context. Um, he wrote, therefore, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, predestining us to the adoption of children, not because we were going to be of ourselves holy and immaculate, but He chose and predestined us that we might be so. And so, for Augustine, this was not a… it was, it was God's choice, and it wasn't based upon a foreseen faith, and so that's a difference. Um, and in his commentary on John 15, he said, here certainly there is no place for the vain argument of those who defend the foreknowledge of God against the grace of God, accordingly maintain that we were elected before the foundation of the world because God foreknew that we would be good, not that He Himself would make us good. This is not the language of Him who said, you do not choose me, but I choose you, John 15, 16. So, I just put that out there because it's something that has to be understood about his background. It's what it is. This is history. Um, and of course, this is something that has been debated through the centuries uh, by the church. Um, but he is significantly articulating this, and it's something we should be aware of. Human depravity. He um, talked about the emphasis upon when Adam sinned, humankind became sinners in word, deed, and action through, his, through that first sin. And um, he, he, said, he said that, uh, I have seen a baby who was envious. Uh, it could not speak, but it turned pale and looked at another baby that was sharing its milk. And he, and he took that experience and said, you know, I, I, it's hard to define when a child becomes responsible but he said, it's very evident that within the child, there's something there, even if they cannot even speak. Um, and so, he was active in developing what's called the doctrine of original sin. Um, in the City of God, he, he offers this description of human depravity in conjunction with original sin, and he says, therefore, if even infants, as the truth faith holds, are born sinners, not on their own account, but in virtue of their origin, and hence we acknowledge the necessity for them of the grace of the remission of sins, 
then it follows that just as they are sinners, they are recognized as breakers of the law which was given in paradise. Now, what he is saying here is that mankind constitutes a condemned body of people because of Adam's sin. Because Adam sinned, everyone who has come after him has cut the contamination within them. And um, I don't think that's something that, that any Christian would dispute at all. Uh, that's pretty consistent. Um, but it does present some questions. It does present, well, what does this mean? How, you know, aren't we free to choose what is good and what is right? And Augustine, I think, to his defense, did teach that human will is free. It's free to choose what it wants. And yet, because of Adam's sin, there is a bondage there that, tr- that draws us to choose that which we would prefer most, and that's not Christ. It's, it's we, we want ourself, and we want, we want to please ourselves. And uh, so, this brings us to Pelagius, and Pelagius was a British Welsh monk who, who his, first, his actual given name is Morgan, but he adopted a Latin name, uh, Pelagius, and he arrived in, he arrived in uh, Rome in 405 AD, and when he arro- arrived in Rome, he was completely appalled by what he saw. There was all kinds of immorality, and he became deeply concerned upon hearing in the confessions that it is God's grace that gives the command, but it is also the command that produces the will to obey. And he looked at that and said, that's offensive. And he said, you know, look around. If this is the teaching that's going on here in in Rome and the Christians are behaving so poorly, is Augustine's teaching just giving permission for people to sin? I mean, if it's God's, God's working, then are we then ultimately not responsible? And so, he was very concerned about what he saw, and uh, he viewed Augustine's teaching as a license for Christians to pursue immoral conduct, and he saw it as producing problems uh, in the church. Um, But in Pelagius' writings, he described human nature as being born morally neutral, and he denied total depravity. He denied original sin. And he essentially said, we are not born in our full development, but with a capacity for good and evil. We are, gotten as, we are begotten as well without virtue as without vice. And before the activity of our own personal will, there's nothing in man but what God has stored in him. And so, he essentially was saying that um, we have this capacity of, there's this neutral capacity that has been put within us, and when we make that first choice, then we become sinners in word, deed, and action. And so, I think it's important to to understand um, his perspective there as well. So, it creates a dialogue and discussion between two parties. Ultimately, 
the church condemned Pelagius as being heretical because of this denial of original sin. Um, and he really was off. I think his motivations were good. I think he desired to bring Christians to a better place of living. Um, but in this case, he was condemned. And Augustine had some responses to him and that really bring, bring us through the church age in about next three, four hundred years, Augustine responded that uh, there was a problem with Pelagius' denial of original sin because it deviated significant from the orthodox teaching of the church. Um, he said, it is not I who made up original sin. The Catholic faith has believed in it from the beginning, but you who deny it are without a doubt a new heretic. All however, who have been born with sin are by judgment of God under the power of the devil. And toward the end of his life, um, basically referencing Romans 5, 12 to 14, he said, by Adam's sin, the whole race by which he was the root was corrupted in him and thereby subjected to the penalty of death. And so it happens that all descended from him were tainted with the original sin. Now, as, as they dialogue back and forth, Pelagius pushed back and for just cause said, look, if you've created man in a box, how does the man get out of the box? And so Augustine responded by saying, well, actually, there is an element of God's prevenient grace that's applied to humanity, and there's something there working and allowing the human will to respond. Prevenient grace literally means grace that precedes. And this doctrine was originally developed by his mentor Ambrose in Milan, and it was further refined by Augustine. In the latter centuries, provenient grace will be shaped by those who would be Calvinists, Wesleyans, and Arminians. And they would talk through this issue and say, this provenient grace may be resisted, and some would say, well, no, it can't be resisted. And so this discussion took place around how is God working, and from a historical standpoint, Augustine set up this discussion for centuries to come. Um, I just want to take a moment to assess a little bit of Augustine as we, as we go forward, because um, I want to be careful how I paint him. Um, Augustine, at that turn of the century, at that time period, Augustine believed that baptism effectively um, washed away the guilt of original sin. And um, this is largely due to his, his teaching on predestination. People began to, to realize, okay, so if my baby, what, what about my baby? If it dies in infancy, what, what, what's going to happen? And so he, be, he and the church developed the concept that when you baptize your baby as a believing parent, you're washing away the implications of original sin, and then when they become accountable to God by, by making decisions for themselves, at that point, at that point, they need to repent and respond by faith and be confirmed into the church. And so, you can see kind of the, the seeds starting to develop within Catholic doctrine, and he believed that the righteousness of Christ was infused into a person through the church. In other words, 
by participating in the life of the church and participating in the sacraments of the church, righteousness was being applied and you were being sanctified by doing the acts of the church. Um, some, of, some, of us, some of us here who have grown up within Catholicism will know the significance of the sacraments and how necessary they are for obtaining eternal life. Um, and so, in the baptism, the original sin is washed away, the guilt of it, but as you become a responsible person, now you apply the elements of the church for your salvation. Now, of course, there's, there, we, have, we have a lot to say that we would disagree with that. Obviously, I'm just presenting you these things as, as they've developed. Um, he also taught, uh, you know, the Catholicity of the church, uh, again, with the Donatist controversy. He said, look, you, you, guys, you, guys, you guys are kind of outside of the church. We're all doing this thing. And he would say, basically, you, you need to come and join the church in order to have salvation. You can't be a, outside of the church and not have salvation. Uh, or you, cannot, you cannot be outside the church and have it. It just doesn't work that way. And so, these are some of the, the lasting um, implications of Augustine that the church will debate through the years, and uh, I'm not advocating here this morning for Augustine's positions. I'm here presenting them to you as he would share them with you. I hope you understand that. Um, and these are debatable things that can be debated by Christians, and so I think it's important to be aware of that. Um, just uh, some of the con conclusions here as we come to an end. As uh, Rome began to truly fall, a lot of the e ecumenical councils would start to develop, but not everyone in the empire would participate. And so gradually you would see a separation between the East and the West, and there would be fragmentation. That's as far as I want to go today, and I apologize for taking a little bit longer. Um, but next week we're going to move in towards the, the Middle Ages and